Hello, I'm Alex Kerner, and this is the Hamilton Review of Books podcast, episode two. Our first episode was, of course, a teaser. So this is our first full episode. Our goal is to do a monthly podcast that really celebrates reading and literature. I'll have a guest every episode, interviewing them in the first half of the episode about their reading lives or other bookish things, and then discuss a specific book with them in the second half of the show. Since we are part of a literary magazine that is based in Canada, and specifically in the city of Hamilton, We'll try to bring more attention to books and reading culture that is connected in some way to our city and country. That said, we'll try to be flexible too. On this episode, my guest is Dana Hansen. Dana is the editor-in-chief of The Review. Dana is a writer, critic, and professor in the English department at Humber College in Toronto, where she formerly served as editor-in-chief of the Humber Literary Review. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in The Globe and Mail, Literary Review of Canada, Quill and Choir, Chicago Review of Books, The Toronto Review of Books, The Winnipeg Review, France's Books Magazine, Australia's Wetterly Magazine, and elsewhere. She lives in Waterdown, Ontario, and is studying to become a librarian. With no further ado, let's go to the interview. Hi, Dana. How's it going? Hi, Alex. Good. Good to be here. I'm so excited. This is your first episode. Yeah, I know. And we'll see. I know this is going to be an episode where uh, several months from now, after we've been doing it for a while, we're going to look back at this and be like, oh, I can't believe we sounded like this. Or uh, <laughs> I think there's probably a habit in podcasts as they're starting out to be um, very formal at first because you're just figuring it out and maybe a little rigid. Mm-hmm. So we'll try our best to counter that, but I'm uh, we're not going to punish ourselves in the event of... Uh, doing that as well um, yeah we'll, we'll make the best of it we'll have a good time so I've already told uh, the audience uh, who you are your background I just read the bio from the website so I hopefully it's up to date uh, but so. uh, uh, before we uh, go into more details about what you do can you tell us a bit about what the Hamilton Review of Books is and its history sure yeah um, so the Hamilton Review of Books is an online literary journal, and we launched in 2016. Um, we actually sort of started planning for it in 2015 and uh, got a group of people together, editors and writers, novelists, uh, teachers. Uh, we had an original group. Um, several people have sort of come and gone since then, so the group has evolved to uh, include some different people, but uh, we had a core group, and our aim was to kind of address the gap in coverage, books coverage, um, particularly local coverage. So our mandate has always been to, uh, as much as possible, cover Hamilton writers, Hamilton books. Uh, We also are very strongly interested in um, covering independent presses, uh, the work that's coming out of of those amazing small presses that very often doesn't get the kind of coverage that uh, we would hope uh, it would. 
Um, and what we're not, we're not just solely focused on, on Hamilton. We do, obviously we've had several issues now. And if you, if you go and look at those, we have coverage of books published in Canada, you know, right across the country. So we're, we're sort of, um, a multi, um, I don't want to say multi-purpose, but there's, there's a lot of sort of, um, aims that we have with the journal, but mostly it's just to highlight work that, won't necessarily get covered in, say, the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star um, with dwindling coverage. So that's, yeah, our primary mandate. And I have to say, it, it is quite successful at that. I uh, Once in a while, I appear as a guest on one of the BookTube channels. It's this fellow named Sean the Book Maniac, okay. uh, which is a great channel worth checking out. And he, um, he, he knew that we were starting this podcast, and he looked at the most recent issue, and I think there's a section on books coming out in the fall. And he's very mm-hmm. well read, but he was like, I haven't heard of any of these. And I think he's actually going to do a little segment going through some of them uh, from the review so uh, i think in terms of highlighting books that aren't going to get mainstream coverage that mm-hmm. maybe struggle to get awards attention uh i know that's in i i'm someone who follows all the awards pretty uh, religiously <laughs> uh but the the dominance of of the big presses especially like mm-hmm. penguin random house in canada and the united states uh, mm-hmm. means that it's often difficult for the smaller presses to get a foot in and then you think you're reading something from a small press and then you later discover it's just an imprint of a penguin random house as well right so it's uh, it's it's not even easy to do that but i think canada has some uh, excellent um smaller Mm. presses that have been quite influential uh and sometimes do get big attention but uh it's it's far and few between so a journal like the hamilton review of books and what it does i think that's important Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. And, and we saw that need and uh, everybody, you know, has had a different role to play the people who have come and gone as editors in the group, everyone has offered something wonderful, you know, added something to, to the journal, and we're kind of an evolving publication. So over the last few years, especially, we've uh, really started to introduce uh, a lot more uh, features. We've, we've sort of expanded our coverage. Uh, we're introducing some new pieces coming up in the next you know, six months or so, uh, including, of course, your podcast and, uh, you know, speaking about highlighting independent presses. Uh, Noelle Allen, who's actually our essays editor uh, on the board, she just launched an independent press bestseller list. Uh, because again, you know, these titles do not get featured uh, typically on the, the mainstream bestseller list. So this is going to be a monthly feature. It's a lot of work for her. She's compiling all that data from independent bookstores, um, not only here in, in Ontario and in the, the GTHA, but across the country. So uh, she's, got, she's got quite a job on her hands, but it's an amazing new, uh, new feature. How, how many indie presses are there in Canada? You know, I don't know. I don't know how many exactly. That would be a question probably that Noelle would be able to answer because she's, you know, steeped in the in the indie press uh, environment. But there are, you know, more than I think most people realize. Yes, there's and, a bunch uh, of micro some, presses too. Right? I was just gonna yeah. say micro presses, chapbook presses. Yeah, there there are there are a lot. Yeah. So can you tell us a little more about what you do at the Hamilton Review of Books and what have you done? Have you always been the editor in chief? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm the founder and the editor in chief. Uh, so 
I was the one who I had previously been working as the editor in chief uh, for a brief time for the Humber Literary Review. Um, I teach at Humber, so I ended up being connected to that. And uh, when I it was actually there was a panel that I was on uh, that Jessica Rose, who is also one of our editors, um, she was uh, she ran this panel and Gary Barwin and Noel and I were on the panel and the topic of coverage came up, you know, lack of coverage for books. Um, and it just sort of struck a chord with me, the conversation that we had. And I thought, OK, maybe we can do something about this. And so I went to Noel and I asked her first, actually, for her advice on it. And uh, she said to me, um, great idea. And here's some money to get you started. So she actually gave us our seed money uh, to start the whole uh, the whole thing. And uh, we kind of went from there. And yes, I've been the, the editor-in-chief from the, the beginning. Um, and what that just really means is that I kind of look after the business end of things. Um, so I, I pay our contributors. I look after, you know, contracts and so forth. I sort of set the tone, I guess, for the publication. Ultimately, everything is my responsibility. So if there's exactly (laughs) if there's a mistake, and we've certainly made them, it's my fault. It's it's up to me. So I kind of represent the journal in that way. And, um, you know, just sort of guide the group, I guess. Uh, We've recently uh, brought in a a managing editor. uh, That's uh, Brianna. Brianna Wodebeck, and uh, she's going to be doing some of those things as well. So we're going to sort of be partnering in this, uh, leading the, the, the journal into, uh, into the future. And um, yeah, but it's, I mean, everybody, as I said, everybody who's been involved with it brings, you know, a particular skill or talent or expertise, a vision for what we want to do. And uh, it's kind of amazing to have watched it grow and evolve and see how people take on different different roles and, 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 you know, different interests that they want to pursue as part of the, the editorial board. Well, it's exciting, I think. And I have to say, I, yeah. I kind of got accidentally <laughs> roped into uh, some of mm-hmm. this. Uh, our, our friend James Karen, who's on the editorial board, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I guess you had all had a discussion about potentially doing a podcast and his name, my name had come up. We talked a lot about you, yeah. Alex. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And then it's like, and so then I went to the first meeting and then, I, you know, I, I knew the idea of being doing the podcast. And then I was like, yes, yes you're on the editorial board. And it was like, well, that's oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's like, but, no go choice big, in the matter. Go big or go home. So I that's guess right. that's fine. Um, so uh, no, but it's it's exciting. You know, I've I've been wanting to do a book podcast, and there's a lot of book podcasts, but I think um, I really wanted to uh, get some uh, do something that I guess aligns now with what the Hamilton Review book is doing uh, and, and in terms of highlighting some books and authors uh, that don't get regular exposure, I think that that's going to be great. So we'll see how this evolves as well. Um, now, one of the things I, I want to talk about is reading and, and being a reader, because I think that's often where people start. And some people are, are more get more serious in terms of literary criticism and, and have degrees and whatnot that, uh, and some of us just do it uh, out of uh, uh, out of recre- for recreational purposes, but maybe you can tell us a bit of your history as a reader. What got drew you to books and literature? 
Oh, that's a long history. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I won't go back to the very beginning, but um, I've been I've been a reader all of my life, um, and at at certain points in my life, you know, books. Uh, I can I can honestly say books saved my life. I mean they they have been hugely influential, uh, and and you know methods of escape, uh, developing interests, developing insight. Um, just you know whenever something's going on, I I go to my books. So it's a big, big part of my life, um, and and it uh, it took me through uh, university. I did a I have. Um, a couple of degrees in in literature uh, and history, um, uh, and began actually a few years, I guess, out of university. I started reviewing books. I was kind of looking for an opportunity, I think, to extend the conversations that I was, you know, privileged to have during my time in grad school. Um, once that was over, I missed very much that community of readers and and sort of you know the opportunity to to talk about the books that we were uh that we were reading and and in some cases argue you know our viewpoints and and so forth and so it felt like a bit of a natural uh progression i guess from from my grad school days into uh into criticism and so i started writing reviews initially i was actually writing more academic uh, scholarly reviews. Uh, and then I, I ended up writing for Quill and Choir. Um, so that was in about 2008, I think, that I started writing for them. And I wrote reviews for Quill and Choir for about 10 years, uh, as well as other publications. Um, I wrote for the Literary Review of Canada a number of times, um, a little bit for the Globe and Mail. Um, there was a, a review out of Winnipeg that is now defunct, sadly, but I did quite a bit of reviewing for them. And um, and then I ended up actually landing at the Chicago Review of Books more recently. So, yeah, that's that's primarily now where where I review when I have the opportunity to do that. I wish I had I wish I had more time for that, but I really don't. So, yeah, where did you do your master's? Uh, at Mac at McMaster. Oh, okay, yeah. So it was an English program yeah. there. Yes. And how did you find yeah. uh, it? I, 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 I'll just quickly say I went to university because I wanted to do history. I knew that, but mm-hmm. I, I, I liked English quite a bit, and I started to do a, mi- a minor in it, mm-hmm. and it was a great. It was actually pretty for the late nineteen nineties for an old white guy prof it was actually quite progressive in terms of what he was teaching uh i read beloved we read Derek walcott mm. we read uh, uh vs naipool like very much an anti-colonial or sorry a post-colonial mm. kind of uh literature and then yeah. we spent six weeks on yates and uh, it's my my <laughs> six grade, weeks yeah it was way too much and and poetry has <laughs> never been my thing i think it's my fault mm. it's my my one of my faults as a reader has never been super into to poetry and it's something I've been working on I try to read one collection every year to try to keep myself uh into yeah. it uh, but it totally killed the vibe for me in that class oh, uh, no. and you know first year undergrads you have a lot of very cocky uh 
mostly <laughs> young white guys <laughs> who want to yeah. dominate the room and it's uh and i was just you know quiet and in the back of the room for the most part mm-hmm. so i i'm kind of that's a regret i had because i think i probably would have continued as a at least to get a minor in english but i'm mm. it was it must have been great that you actually you pushed yourself through and you actually did grad school on it how did you find the kinds of things you were you got to read there yeah, I um so I, I my undergrad was a combined degree history and, and English and my initial plan was to continue in history and then I took a theory class uh that blew my mind. Um and I was really very interested in feminist theory and especially postcolonial theory. So that's what I ended up doing my masters in. I, I actually wrote my thesis about Salman Rushdie and I would say that my experience in that program was a mixed bag because there were some really excellent things. The actual experience of writing the thesis was great. What I was reading, I was really given a lot of latitude to kind of pursue my my interests. Um, I had a very good supervisor. Uh, but, um, you know, some, some of what we were reading was, I had a, a Canadian literature seminar that was pretty crusty in terms of what we were looking at. Some pretty old... And and certainly, you know, I'm all for classics. A lot of my favorite books are classics, but, um, you know, that could have probably, you know, stood for a bit of an updating. Uh, But no, I had one, actually, I had one class that was a um, a combo looking at African-American literature and Asian-American literature. And it was a strange sort of um, meshing, mashing together of of these two uh, areas of literature. I certainly don't think it would be something that I would have, you know, done. But we read some very interesting titles. We read Richard Wright and James Baldwin and... um, uh, yeah, I can't think of all the the people that we we read. I mean, that was a long time ago. So at this I point, did American but... history, so we did get to read some fiction and and Richard Wright, yeah. obviously, both his bio, his autobiography, and his uh, and uh, yeah. Native Son are Native pretty Son. big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think it was as with I think most grad school experiences you know kind of a mixed bag had its ups and yeah, downs yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. at some point I'd, I'd love to have a longer conversation with you about Rushdie because uh, I take it you've probably read all his work I've read a handful and, and Midnight's Children is definitely uh, yeah. uh, one of my favorite books ever uh, uh, but I, also I, super Rushdie. inconsistent <laughs> oh so, oh well that's 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 Rushdie though yeah. and that's the thing I actually really like about his writing he's his work is deeply flawed but I mean, it's just to me, I love his stuff. I really enjoy his books. Great deal. Did, did you read uh, Homeland Elegies that came out last year? I've read parts of it. Yes, yeah, I mean the, he the has essay that collections whole thing on like uh, like which Rushdie is the right one for a, a Muslim American yeah. to read, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He's. I think that's one of the things too I like about him is he does have a sense of humor about himself. He doesn't take himself overly seriously, at least not now. I think maybe when he was a younger writer, he did, and maybe learned a little bit from that. But probably the experiences that he went through knocked some of the edges off a bit. And um, I just think he's very he's super creative and. And his books, sometimes, you know, you get a you get a real winner and then others, it's a bit of a, you know, bit of a, a less, less wonderful. But um, yeah, no, and, uh, in general, I've, I've always been a big fan of his work. Oh, that's fantastic. Really well, one day, maybe when we're over some drinks, we can have a more, <laughs> a longer Sounds conversation good. about it. Um, yes. 
so in terms of you, the reviews you do for the Chicago Review of Books and whatnot, is that more academic or? Uh... No. Uh, so it's primarily uh, fiction. Um, there is, they do, so every month we get a list of books to choose from and, and it goes out to the group of, you know, kind of uh, regular reviewers. Uh, there are often poetry titles on there, and I admit I stay away from the poetry titles as well because it's not my it's not my favorite genre, um, and I also just don't feel like I have enough uh, knowledge of it to really you know do it justice. So, uh, but primarily, what I I think everything that I have reviewed up to now for Chicago has been fiction, and I tend to gravitate to first novels a lot. I'm always really interested in reviewing first novels. Um, I'm excited to kind of um, do my tiny little part of boosting someone who's just getting started and, you know, is sort of excited about about the the reception of their first book. So uh, I've done a lot of a lot of that. Uh, interestingly, there are some Canadian titles that the Chicago Review will will pull for for review. But um, most of the time they are they are U.S. And so I have been introduced to books that I would have never, uh, you know, seen, heard of, you know, read, really. Uh, and that's been a wonderful way for me to sort of expand my uh, my vision of, of, of fiction, especially. Yeah, um, just an inc- incredible number of books that get published every year that's you know things that we miss potentially that it's are... impossible to keep up oh i find it yeah. is um yeah. so i'm curious in terms of like other critics like if you're trying mm-hmm. to find a book that you want to read is there any critics or a book you know you have your interest your eye on but you want to see what your your common thinking or like-minded critics are thinking who is there anyone you like to turn to so I don't know that I would say there is a specific critic. And this, this gets into, you know, sort of the, the issues around, around criticism these days where uh, there are so few people who are actually uh, doing criticism full time, making a living, doing criticism. I mean, there's the, there's the big names, uh, the James Woods and Carl Segal. And uh, certainly I... I love reading their reviews in many ways for the art of them. I mean, it's a genre in itself. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I think I probably tend to look more actually for places where reviews are published. Um, I'm not really sure why I do that, but I have to think about that. But the New York Times, um, Quill Inquire here, obviously, um, I, I tend to sort of look more at the at the at the place, the publication itself. Uh, if I feel like I I have some faith in that book forum. Yeah. I just got a sub for the the New Yorker because I find mm-hmm. I, I like the New York Times a lot, even if I disagree occasionally <laughs> with some of the reviews. But you know, there's limited space in that uh, in that forum, sure. even in the digital era. And I find yeah. that the New Yorker sometimes allows the reviewer a little more opportunity to really delve deeply into some of the things. Uh, yeah, and, and the New York Review of Books is is good for well, that too. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I get a free tote bag <laughs> with the, with my subscription with the New awesome, Yorker. Awesome, yeah. Like, I'm going to take that. It's not the Sally Rooney tote bag, but it's, uh, you know, second. Or the bucket hat. <laughs> yeah, the bucket hat. That that one got <laughs> mocked a little, rightfully so. But the tote bag was beautiful. <laughs> yes, you can't beat a good tote bag. Um, <laughs> I think I have one of those, actually. The <laughs> Rooney one? No, no, oh, the, the, the New Yorker. Yorker. Yeah, no. <laughs> The Rooney one, I don't think they did that in Canada. I think the, it was an American and a British thing. I saw people Probably. on Instagram with their little uh, boxes as they arrived, and they did the, all their unboxing. It was pretty impressive, the level of uh, uh, publicity around that. Uh, it would be nice if they spread it around a little more. Than just it would. On it book, would, yes. Yeah. It would just put a call out right now. Spread it around a little bit more. We'd yeah. like some bucket hats and tote bags, please, no, up here. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so uh, tell us about the next issue of the Hamilton Review of Books. What's going to be discussed? So this fall, uh, we have, I'm really excited. We have a guest editor for the first time. Uh, we have two themed issues that are coming back to back. So for the fall, our theme is youth and sort of ideas around what youth means and uh, emerging writers and and so forth. Uh, the the second themed issue will be kind of looking at the the opposite of that. So aging, death, dying, grief, and how art kind of you know plays a part in that process. So the the youth issue uh, we have Jamil Millar who is our uh, guest editor, and she is a Hamiltonian and she is curating. Uh, a wonderful collection of reviews, uh, an essay, an interview with local uh, sort of GTHA writers. Um, and uh, these are emerging voices. These are young people, for the most part, uh, who are just kind of getting started uh, in in criticism and in uh, literature in general. And uh, that should be coming around the middle of November. We're also going to have a set of reviews um, and some excerpts and some other features as part of the fall issue that uh, the HRB editors are are working on now. Um, so we're going to have a good, a pretty good size issue with a lot of, of great things to read. It's going to be, I think, a really, a really nice, interesting uh, fall issue for us this year. And Jamil is going to be the next guest on the podcast, so she's agreed to do it. So we'll hopefully be releasing that episode around the same time as the the issue comes out. Uh, So some good synergy going on there. Yeah, that's great. Uh, And I'm super excited too. And she's picked up a book, picked out a book. I I don't have it offhand, but as well that we'll be talking about. So, uh, so that's great. And is there anything else on the horizons in terms of the Hamilton Review books that you'd like to tell folks? Well, hopefully, maybe, fingers crossed, in the new year, uh, maybe we'll be able to have an event. I don't know. (laughs) It would be nice. Uh, When the pandemic started, we had a a book fair that was planned uh, for, uh, it was going to happen in Hamilton, and um, it was all ready to go, pretty much, and we had to pull the plug on it because, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, I don't know that we're going to try to do that again. There's some talk about a possible uh, book fair event coming in the future in Hamilton uh, that we may be a part of. We'll see where that goes, but um, possibly a panel of some description. Uh, We've had panels in the past that have been um, about a variety of different topics and very 
you know, interesting. We held them at the staircase and in Hamilton, whether we do this in person or if it is a virtual event, we'll, we'll have to see, but I'm really hoping that we'll be able to get back to our events. Cause I know, I know our community has enjoyed them. Um, and, and we've had people sort of asking if we're going to do that again. So, yeah, I know uh, people want to see each other again and, but we're obviously yes. everyone's being cautious as well. So uh, sure. let's, let's hopeful for the spring and fully vaccinated yes. <laughs> events there yes. where, where we can actually maybe be indoors and hear each other, each other's intelligent thoughts about books and whatnot. Okay. So that's fantastic. So, uh, that's good for now. So let's, uh, we're going to have a little chat about Miriam Taves new book, but we'll take a little break and come back in a few minutes. As a heads up, Fight Night, being a Miriam Taves book, does talk about mental illness and suicide, so our discussion does spend some time delving into these themes. We want to give our listeners a warning. Welcome back, and now we are going to be having a little chat about Miriam Taves' new book, Fight Night. Um, this is going to be a segment of the show that we will try to do regularly, that the guest uh, will recommend to me a book they want to talk about, uh, and then we'll try to have a 20 to 30 minute chat about it. Um, Miriam Taves obviously is one of the most recognized Canadian authors for the last two decades uh her her books have been uh, shortlisted for several awards i think she's won the governor general award uh she's uh her films have been her movies her books have been adapted into films uh and uh so she's she's definitely one of the superstars of the canadian literary scene and she's a great author obviously so uh i'm gonna turn it to dana to tell us a bit about fight night uh, so Fight Night is uh, Tave's eighth novel, um, and it's really the story of three women um, told by Swiv, who is a nine-year-old, um, living with her mom, Mushi, who is pregnant with Gord. And Gord, uh, we don't know if Gord is uh, male or female, but they refer to Gord as Gord. Uh, and with the grandmother, so Elvira, um, who is, uh, in pretty frail health. She's, she's got a heart condition and she's, she's kind of at the end of her, of her life. And the first part of the book is this time period is probably over the course of a few weeks, uh, that Swiv is telling, she's writing to her absent father, Dad has sort of disappeared. We don't know where he is, or at least Swiv doesn't really have a sense of, of where he's gone. Um, and she's been given this assignment to basically write to him, write him a letter and and let him know what life is is like right now in their home uh, in, in Mushi's third trimester before Gord arrives. And uh, the other thing to know about Swiv is that she's been expelled from school because she's been fighting. So she's she's quite a quite an interesting character. She, we can talk more about that, but she's very uh, assertive 
Um, and, and she, she's kind of a scrapper, I guess, and she gets herself into some trouble. So she's expelled from school and now she's basically being schooled at home by Elvira, her grandmother. And, uh, it's, it's not your typical sort of homeschooling situation. These are interesting lessons that she's being given, uh, strange math problems and just life lessons in general, things that, uh, that she's learning to do. And the second part of the book is uh, a, basically a trip that she, Swiv, and, and her grandmother take to Fresno, California, uh, to visit Elvira's nephews. And uh, so it does become, the book kind of turns into a little bit of a road novel. There's a lot of comedy uh, and tragedy, sadly, in the, in the book. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a plot driven book by any means. And, and Taves books generally are not plot driven. Um, but the tremendous character development in the story, uh, huge heart, humor, it's, it's the kind of book that you, you, you know, when people talk about something they can't put down, it really, it really is that kind of book, you just want to keep reading it and see what happens to Swiv and her family, her, her rather unusual family. What I find interesting is that, and I haven't read all of Tave's book. This is only the the fourth I've read, uh, and uh, but there's obviously autobiographical elements to it, uh, and so I am curious because like, uh, Tave's is also, I guess, is a mother has a, a child who's, uh, and I guess it was a similar kind of a relationship, or they grew up in Toronto. And ironically, the audiobook is narrated by Taves and her daughter. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah. So which is who's an actress apparently. Okay. So it's an interesting like. It, I'm curious if the daughter saw a lot of herself and the kind of person she was within Swift. Yeah. So, uh, but a question to ask <laughs> Miriam Taves and her daughter. Um, I what I find really fascinating is it's not plot driven, but the voice. It's like as you said, Swift's voice and and the kinds of or the perspective she brings very much aligns, kind of like the themes of our first episode of or, or sorry next issue of the of the review and this is by pure coincidence i think that we uh, we chose this book to align with it uh, but you know i think one of the most interesting things about this book and what kept me reading was really getting into the mind of a, a, a young child and how she's an interpret how she's interpreting the actions and thoughts and ideas of her adults and obviously it's been like uh, going through uh the uh it's being interpreted in a certain way that doesn't necessarily always make sense to swim and you can tell it's frustrating to her but i think it says a lot in terms you know uh, literature that really tries to get into the heads of of young people and how they see the world and what they think of us uh, when they're trying to survive yes yeah she's she's a precocious child she's obviously very intelligent and i just i love how um she's got so many sort of contradictory characteristics she's very mature on one hand i mean she's clearly the caretaker of everyone in that house um, and she's she's anxious. Uh, she's definitely got anxiety and, and that comes out at different points in the novel and she has to be comforted, particularly by her grandmother. 
Um, but she's also a typical kid in the sense that she's so easily embarrassed by things. She's, you know, horrified by anything to do with uh, nudity or sexuality, uh, you know, and her, her mom and grandmother kind of, you know, tease her. A fair, a yeah, they talk a lot about those things <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they tease her a lot about that and they enjoy her embarrassment. So she's she's just a really fascinating character and, and seems to me, she seems well beyond her years, you know, nine years old. She, she's very world-wise, really, about uh, street-wise, I guess, about about people. And, um, yeah, it's a, a really fascinating portrayal of, you know, the, the thoughts and, and perspective of, of a young person who's got a really... Well, she's, she's, she's kind of in that role of being a parent, um, you know, to her mom and very much to her grandmother. There's such a beautiful bond there between... Uh, between Swiv and and Grandma, um, you know, Swiv is her 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 companion. Obviously, she's home from school, so she's she's there all the time with Grandma. But she's you know she she knows when she needs her medication. She knows when she needs her compression socks. She's on top of everything. Her nitro spray. She's constantly worried that Grandma is not gonna you know she's she's not gonna wake up from her nap or she's gonna stop breathing. So she's again she's got a lot of anxiety for a young child, but she's got a maturity. Well, grandma and mom are so irresponsible at times. <laughs> and you're like, poor Swib. And then, of course, I don't want to give too much away, but there's something that Swib does towards the end of the book that finally she's acting her age and does something incredibly irresponsible without thought. But to a certain degree, it's like, do you blame her? Right? This is probably something that her grandma would have yes. totally done yeah. uh, in that situation. So, uh, yeah. So, where do you think this fits larger into Tay's work? So I've only read, so I let, read All My Puny Sorrows, uh, A Complicated Kindness, and uh, uh, Women Talking, which are all very heavy books. Uh, and, 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 and I think some of the themes are are the same uh but this one's definitely more comedic and and there's a lot more leading with the jokes uh in this one which i appreciated and i was not expecting but i also kind of thought it was kind of like a a a a complimentary novel to all my puny sorrows because you can kind of tell the story that happens there the names have been changed but same kinds of things have happened to uh, Swiv and his, her mother's family uh, back home with mental illness uh, and whatnot. So, what do you? How do you think this fits in into her larger body of work? I, I would agree. I think this is. Um, it's certainly not a you know a trilogy by any means, but the complicated kindness and all my puny sorrows. I saw a lot of similarities in those two books. Um, in terms of you know the themes, um, the presence of uh, mental illness, as you say, um, suicide, um, you know, loss of family members, fear of the repetition of that. Uh, same in in all my puny sorrows. What I sort of um, actually reviewed um, all my puny sorrows, and and what I what I mentioned in that review was that it felt to me like the the sisters in all my puny sorrows were the grown up versions of the sisters in complicated kindness. So it's sort of a, you know, a, a progression in time to sort of see where they might have been at that point. Uh, and I, I sort of feel like Taves went a little bit, you know, sideways with women talking, which was in itself an incredible novel, but it, it is a standalone piece in some ways. And I think she's come back again to some of these themes 
um, and to the particularly to telling stories about women in uh, uh, you know in in sort of unusual family setups and dynamics and again you know this the presence obviously you know in this story we have again um, characters who are are um, uh, mourning the loss of family members uh, who have um, died by suicide uh, the father the older sister in fight night they were, were told they've um, they've both died by suicide and so there's there's a lot of echo from all my puny sorrows and a complicated kindness and and there's a suggestion that they they died in the same way yes uh, i i caught that so that i i really found that interesting to that thread connecting it right which i i think is is unfortunately the way that tave's own father and sister passed away as well yeah it is yeah and and so this this novel feels like kind of a continuation of some of those themes but i think you're absolutely right it's it's it is lighter. It is. It is more comedic. There's more of a sense of sort of hopefulness, and there's this repetition throughout the novel about the importance of fighting. Right? That's where the title is coming from. The importance of being a fighter. Fight till the last. You know, to the end. Don't give up. This is you know what we have to do, and 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 that's what Mushi, the the mother, is doing. She's she's fighting to sort of regain her 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 sense of self her life after you know the loss of her older sister and her father and 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 Elvira the grandmother she really recognizes that that fighting spirit in her daughter um and and I think in Swiv as well uh, so um all my puny sorrows apparently has been adapted have you had a chance to see it i think it was a tiff wasn't it I haven't had a chance to see it, but I'm 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 both I'm sort of excited about seeing it, but I'm always a little bit leery of seeing adaptations of books that I loved so much <laughs> because I I don't I don't know I don't want to be disappointed. I try to think of them as two separate two separate works of art, though. <laughs> it can be ruined. Like I was a huge fan of the Goldfinch, and I couldn't bring myself to see that film because I've heard only horrible things. Donna Tartt broke up with her agent because of it because oh. she wasn't given enough control with the film and initially it had her longtime agent for like 30 years. So I, I, I can see I assume uh, Taves, who I think has more of a history in the film industry. Apparently mm-hmm. she starred in some. That's true. She went to Europe once and starred in this non-English language film several years ago, which I uh, wonder may have uh, given her the idea for what happens to Mushi. In, in the novel no absolutely uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so women talking is also going to be adapted mm-hmm. in very I capable can totally hands. See that. yeah but it's uh, Sarah Polly to direct and write and Frances McDormand is the lead actress so it's like they got heavyweights yeah, uh, behind that that amazing. should be good I'm looking forward to that absolutely and that book that book deserves the best possible treatment that is an incredible novel um, and and a really important story and I think a story that I certainly I'd ne- I had never heard about I'm not sure anybody really had heard of you know the the actual you know real events behind behind that story so uh yeah I'm looking forward to that too have you read many other works that um have dealt with mental illness as explicitly as Taves like it's obviously something that she's struggled with personally and she's talked about it um and and you could 
I'm just curious, like the the terms of the the therapeutic benefit that she goes through in terms of being able to write about it, but how hard that must be at the same time to like relive uh, these experiences, which must be so hard. And that's why, in some respects, I really the comedic approach in this novel was kind of a breath of fresh air which i'm curious like taves probably needs a bit of a breath you know you want to like this is one of our survival techniques those of us who've, who've struggled at times with mental illness is is joking and comedy and and to be able to lead with that i found like a probably not just refreshing for a reader because i always read these books that are incredibly depressing but also probably for her as well yeah and she treats the the subject matter um so carefully so respectfully obviously this is her personal experience so you know she she knows what it feels like to go through this but there's nothing you know when she introduces the humor there's nothing flip about it um you know it's it's all done with with a a purpose and um and you know the point is made in fight night that comedy and tragedy they're just two you know sides of the same coin um and and the importance of uh, you know of not taking uh taking life too seriously despite the fact amazingly enough that you know horrible things happen um i have not i can't say i have ever read anything else that is as explicit in its treatment of of uh mental illness suicide um that that does it in such a very um heartfelt human touching way um yeah so we before we go too far uh, i know you had wanted to read an excerpt from uh the book and i was hoping you would maybe give us a bit of a background in terms of what you would like to read and uh... one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that the book also touches on uh in the same way that uh, her previous books they all have the uh set in the context of a background in the Mennonite community. So Taves herself is from a Mennonite community, a Russian uh, Mennonite colony. Uh, that's where she's descended from. She grew up in Steinbach, Manitoba, in a, a Mennonite community. And uh, all of her books really kind of wrestle with the challenges of, of, that, um, of that upbringing. And so the characters in all of her books, particularly the, the women, who mostly populate her books um, have faced repression and violence and um, you know ill treatment at particularly at the hands of men in the in the Mennonite community. And the passage that I wanted to read from Fight Night is where uh, Grandma Elvira, who um, Taves has said is is based on her own mom Elvira, uh, basically describes what happened to to her and to the women in the community that she is from uh it's not a there's no mention specifically of the of the name of the the Mennonite community but uh it's it's a place that they have left so now grandma and Mushi and Swiv they live in Toronto this is you know where they came from so she says my town my hometown and your mom's too who she says who a lot in the book because of her, her breathing. And Momo's, of course. Momo is the older sister who has died. It had a similar tragedy, in my opinion. The church, all those men, all those Willet Bronze, who was the leader in this community, 
prevented us from, well, no, it was more than that. They took something from us. They took it from us. They stole it from us. It was our tragedy, which is our humanity. We need those things. We need tragedy, which is the need to love and the need, not just the need, the imperative, the human imperative to experience joy, to find joy and to create joy all through the night, the fight night. That church in our town, those Willet Bronze, so smug, so certain, and they caused mass scale tragedy. They were bandits. They crept in, crept in and tiptoed around in the dark. We couldn't see what they were doing at the time, but we felt it. We felt it, all those Willet Bronze. They robbed us blind. They stole our souls. They hung out their shingles as soul savers, even as they were destroying them. They replaced our love, our joy, our emotions, our tragedies, rage, sorrow, violence, lust, desire, Sorry, am I embarrassing you, Swiv? Well, they burnt it all down. But listen, our love, our resilience, our madness. We go crazy, of course. We lose ourselves. We're human. They took all those things and replaced them with evil and with guilt. Oh my God, guilt. Jeepers creepers. Ah, but we'll slay their hypocrisy with our jokes. High five. They took all the things we need to navigate the world. They took the beautiful things right under our noses, crept in like thieves, replaced our tolerance with condemnation, our desire with shame, our feelings with sin, our wild joy with discipline, our agency with obedience, our imaginations with rules, every act of joyous rebellion with crushing hatred, our impulses with self-loathing, our empathy with sanctimoniousness, threats, cruelty, our curiosity with isolation, willful ignorance, infantilism, and punishment, our fires with ashes, our love, our love with fear and trembling, our hoo, hoo, did you find that nitro, honey? They took our life force, and so we fight to reclaim it. We fight and we fight and we fight. We fight to love. We fight to love ourselves. We fight for access to our feelings, for access to our fires, for fight. We fight to access to God. They stole God from us. We fight for our lives. Some of us lose the fight. Oh, it can bring a person to her knees. It can. To think. To think that Willet Braun came around to the house. To think he came around to the house to have us listen to him tell us that Grandpa and Momo are cast out, are unable to enter the gates of heaven. To think of it, Swiv, there are few losses in life that can bring a person to her knees. Have mercy on our souls. Grandpa and Momo too, both of them kneeling on the train tracks. All the Willet bronze, God was the farthest thing from their minds. Those scavengers, those thieves, those heretics. Grandpa and Momo were closer to God than all of them. They knelt. They touched death. One of the most powerful passages in the entire book. Uh, and there's hints of humor there, but we promise our listeners that the most, <laughs> that's probably one of the heavier portions of, of the book. Um, uh, what did it make you feel when you read that? I get shivers actually when I read that passage. Um, something I've noticed about Tave's work is that there's always a there's always a point in the book where uh you know Tave's authorial voice really comes through so it's no longer uh the character speaking it happened in women talking it, it happened in all my puny sorrows there's always a point at which she really um she she just says what's on her mind and it it, it usually is a condemnation of of the Mennonite community and the you know well, she's rightfully angry absolutely right? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. 
you know, the I think the treatment of her family after the suicides was was horrible, right? And it's um, that said, it is mostly a comedic novel, so we'll shift gears as best as we can. Um, are you much into co- comedic novels? I'm not. I'm definitely someone who loves the books that destroy me. Uh, but on occasion, uh, it's nice to you know read a. You know, where'd you go, Bernadette, or I guess less a couple of years ago as well. But, you know, for the most part, they're less in favor. We're in dark times <laughs> to a certain degree. Uh, and there's a lot of pain. Yeah. yeah, comedic novels are, I think they're very hard to pull off, quite honestly. Um, and may- maybe I'm just a tough audience. I, I don't I don't laugh easily uh, from from. Uh, you know, novels, uh, particularly, but yeah, I mean, certainly the kind of fiction that is, is, you know, popular or being, you know, published these days is, is heavy and, and rightfully so, because there are a lot of really important and heavy, serious issues. Um, but I know I'm not, I'm not somebody who seeks out comedic novels. I think I might have a bit of a Brechtian side to me where I feel like I have to really be learning something, be, I have to be educated from what I'm reading. So, um, yeah, this, but this book, um, the humor is really, it, as I say, it has a purpose. It's definitely an important element of the book. And, and there are many passages that are just laugh out laugh out loud. They are really, truly funny. And and a lot of those come from Swift's perspective on things too, as we were saying earlier, some of her funny sayings and thoughts about things. Could you get, could you give us a little passage sure. maybe to lighten the mood as we yeah. move towards sure. the end? So this passage is, uh, so this is in the second part of the book when, um, uh, Swiv and Grandma are on their way to Fresno, and they are in the airport making their connection uh, to their next plane to get to Fresno. And again, this is you know a nine year old who's kind of shepherding her her very frail, older but super you know personality full. Uh, grandmother who's been talking to everybody on the plane getting to know everyone she's she just seems to connect with with everyone around her but Swiv is always bothered by the fact that you know grandma doesn't stop talking she's worried about her health that she's gonna have a heart attack or something so they're getting off the plane and uh she gets into a wheelchair gets grandma into a wheelchair and they're going down the ramp uh and this is this is what happens I pushed her down a ramp. She sped up, and I had to run to hang on. Her red purse strap fell off my shoulder, and I took one hand off the wheelchair for a second to put it back onto my shoulder. Then I lost control of the wheelchair, and Grandma went shooting off down the ramp. Wow, she was shouting. She said things in her secret language. Na oba heat xi. She was picking up speed. I ran to catch up with her, but that stupid red purse strap got tangled around my waist, and then Grandma hit a fucking body shop stand with her wheelchair. It fell over, and creams and soap bombs flew everywhere. A man tried to grab the handles on her wheelchair, but he missed, and she went flying past him. It looked like she might tip over onto two wheels. I was running. I heard Mom calling my cell phone. I knew it was Mom from the ringtone. It was a song called Fever. Finally, Grandma stopped beside a water fountain that was just the right height for a person in a wheelchair to have a drink. 
Grandma leaned over and had a long drink of water, and she sat there smiling calmly as if this had been her final destination all along. The body shop lady came out of her store and said, what's going on here? I ran over to her and told her my grandma had hit her stand. I helped her pick up some creams and tubes and shove them back on the stand. When I finally reached grandma, she looked so happy. She was very proud of herself. What took you so long, she said. I was huffing and puffing. Maybe you should use some of my nitro spray, she said. Here, have a drink. She pointed at the water fountain. Yeah, I found that whole end section at the airport and obviously towards the hospital uh, hilarious and, and tragic at the same time. But uh, it, it definitely fit the mood of the entire book. That whole section in Fresno, uh, you know, it, you know, it's definitely like a, a bucket list trip for grandma uh, there. And it uh, it felt uh, you felt the joy that she had. But poor Swiv, who obviously is the whole story is told through her eyes, had Having to see her grandma do all these things, which are, but like, didn't she try to drive stick shift? She did. She tried to drive. She was, I mean, there were so many things when they were on the boat and, you know, she almost fell out of the boat. There were many, many things that could have, uh, you know, been the end of grandma. So. Swift was Swift was always worried. I guess in general, I think both of us really enjoyed this book. I think it's uh, from a prize perspective, and I know that's my thing. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it gets shortlisted. Uh, Taves has come close to winning before. I think the last time she was shortlisted was for All My Puny Sorrows. And I think she lost to... Um, oh, God, what's the... It's the book about the... the um, the theremin us conductor oh yeah yeah also a great book right yeah so um uh, that was a good year uh but uh we'll see if this one advances but either way she obviously has a a lot of loyal readers uh and i think she she speaks to issues that in a way completely different and it's a from a historian perspective right in terms of the the history of the of Mennonites uh, in in Manitoba and and the role they played in in those communities. She offers so much insight. Uh, Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that's it for us uh, today. I want to thank you, uh, Dana. Is there anything you want to add about uh, Taves or (laughs) books in general? just, just uh, you know, to encourage everybody to to pick this book up if you've been thinking about it, because it is a tremendous read, uh, very, very heartwarming, very moving, very emotional. Uh, and certainly, you know, if if this is something that you have experience with mental illness and suicide and so forth, I would caution anyone um, to to, you know, familiarize yourself with with what the book is about, because there are certainly some some trigger points uh, in, in the book. But um, it, it is a really, a really tremendous book. And I, I hope, too, that that Taves uh, gets a nod, a Giller nod. That would be that would be wonderful. So, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for being our first guest on our inaugural episode of the Hamilton Review of Books podcast. My pleasure. Absolutely. This was great. Thanks again for joining us for this first full episode of the Hamilton Review of Books podcast. Next month, we'll have Jamil Miller, who's the guest editor for the next issue of the review. And besides interviewing her, we'll also be talking about The Most Precious Substance on Earth by Shashi Bhatt. Till then.